Today we want to start a new study, a study of the book of Job. And uh, we'll be covering uh, the first chapter and uh, chapter 2 down to verse 10 in our initial study. Uh, the book of Job is called Wisdom Literature. Literally, it's an epic. Uh, it's done in prose, except that the speeches are done in verse, as far as Hebrew verse is concerned. The speeches in the book, uh, you find, uh, between Job and his friends, are arranged in a systematic pattern. The subject is the suffering of a righteous man. And why does he suffer? If God is good and God is in control, uh, why would Job suffer? Uh, the test of faith is presented in its most intense form uh, in Job's suffering when you have the extremely uh, righteous man, in a sense, uh, going through extreme suffering. This book is a tremendous gift from God to man. And there's nothing that approaches it uh, in literature that deals with this subject. Tennyson called it the greatest poem of ancient or modern times. We don't know who wrote the book, or when, or where. Job was a real person. This has been questioned uh, by many, and uh, they raise that question because of the a seeming artificial arrangement of the book uh, in the speeches and in the reports of the servants of Job who come in uh, and uh, announce calamity after calamity. But Job is treated as a real person uh, uh, elsewhere in Scripture. For instance, in Ezekiel 14, 14, you have him in conjunction with Noah and Daniel. Uh, God says, though Noah, Job, and Daniel were found among the peoples, who were to perish, they would save only their own souls and the rest of the people would be destroyed. Speaking, speaking of the fact that God uh, was going to bring judgment on his people. James 5.11 takes him as a real person. You have heard of the patience of Job, says James. Uh, the date of the writing, as we say, we don't know. Some argue between uh, Abraham and Moses, uh, although... Uh, other authors, such as E.J. Young and uh, Anderson, believe that uh, it was as late as the reign of Solomon. The outline of the book, uh, you start off with the testing of Job, and then the discussion between Job and his friends. Uh, finally, you have another friend introduced by the name of Elihu. Then you have God answering Job and the final outcome. We start off uh, in our opening chapter here with a description of Job. Uh, his place of dwelling is mentioned in verse 1 of chapter 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. Now, uh, Uz apparently was uh, along the eastern border of Israel. For uh, an Israelite living west of Jordan, everything on the other side was east. And He's said to be the greatest man of the east in verse 3. So the land of Uz, apparently, along the eastern fringe of Israel. His perfection spiritually is a part of this description, as it says, 
uh, and that that man was perfect and upright, one that feared God and eschewed evil. Perfect doesn't mean that he was sinless. Matter of fact, his first action is to offer sacrifice for sin. Uh, he says himself, how should a man be just with God? If he will contend with him, he cannot answer him one of a thousand. But perfect in the sense of giving himself entirely to the Lord. Really genuine. He's upright, it says, uh, an honest man. Uh, he feared God. He's a God-fearing man, and God's will was his rule. He eschewed evil. He rejected what was wrong. Uh, so we see his perfection spiritually. And then his prosperity. In uh, verse 2, there was born unto him, there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His children uh, uh, comprised something of a perfect family for an Old Testament family. His substance, in verse 3, was also 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 she-asses and a very great household, many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the East. And uh, this was a very close family. In verse 4, his sons went and feasted in their houses every one his day and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Very close family. Uh, you uh, find here just a, a very wonderful picture of a, a godly man. And we need to remember, as we go through his dark times, uh, that... All of these early years, prior to the dark times, he was enjoying the blessing of God. God's blessing rests upon the righteous. There are exceptions, and there are times when the righteous go through great suffering. But don't forget these beginning years when God's blessing had been so manifestly upon him. Now, his priesthood for his family is mentioned in verse 5. It was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them, sanctified his children, and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This did Job continually, acting the part of his priests. He was a godly parent doing everything he can to make doubly sure that all is well spiritually with his children. Uh, he does this to restore holiness as he sanctifies them in a sense, to get forgiveness if they've sinned. And of course, animal sacrifice in the Old Testament pointed toward the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who was the true Lamb of God. Uh, those animal sacrifices could not truly atone for sin, but Christ could. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altar slain could give the guilty conscience peace or take away the stain, but Christ the heavenly Lamb takes all our sin away, a sacrifice of richer blood and nobler name than they. Uh, we uh, 
could have a clue as to the date here in that uh, after the Mosaic law, you have such offerings being offered by the priest at Jerusalem and not individually, uh, which could point to this being before Moses, which would make it one of the, uh, the earliest book in Scripture. Now, uh, we have this description of Job, and then we have the discussion between God and Satan about Job. In uh, verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. Here's Satan's presentation of himself before God. It doesn't say that this is in heaven. It, it seems to uh, bring that to our mind, but it doesn't say that. Should we take this literally? The sons of God apparently referred, referred to angels, and uh, here's uh, Satan among them, but of course he's a fallen angel. And we have uh, some problem with the concept of Satan reporting in to God and uh, being found among the uh, sons of God. Joseph Carlyle, in his commentary, uh, says we shouldn't really take this literally. He says that God oftentimes expresses himself in his actions as if he were a man or like men. So he is setting up a scene for us, says Carlyle, as if he, God, were a great king, sitting on his throne, having his servants around him and having his subjects come before him for review and for assignments. He does this as a condescension to our understanding. He does this uh, in a way of explaining the manner of things and his governing of his universe is, in effect, what Carlyle's saying. It's not to be thought, says Carlyle, that God does, in fact, have certain days when he calls together the good and the evil angels. God is not in need of any reports from them, nor would Satan actually be permitted in the presence of a pure and holy God who cannot look upon sin. But, says Carlyle, God speaks in this way that we may get the, some correct view of his government of the world. Charles Simeon takes a similar view. He says, there would be no inconsistency if we were to interpret it literally, but we apprehend that it is a kind of parabolic representation like that of Micaiah, who saw in a vision a spirit coming into the presence of Jehovah and proposing to go forth as a lying spirit in the mouth of Ahab's prophets. Whether we take it uh, as a literal coming or parabolic representation, the purpose is to indicate that Satan is a mere creature. He can only do what God permits him to do. You notice uh, how this is, where Satan comes before these to report. The Lord says unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And uh, Satan speaks of the fact that uh, he has not been able to touch uh, Job because God has built a hedge around him. Here's Satan as a mere creature. He can only do what God permits him to do. As W.H. Green says, there's profound meaning in Satan's appearing here. It is designed to express his subordination and subjection to divine control. He's not at liberty to pursue his mischievous designs to whatever extent he may choose. There is a superior will that sets limits, limits to his rage. 
allows him, even within these limits, to act out of his evil nature only for the sake of some divine end which he is made instrumental in achieving. You have this appearance, and then the questions that God asked of Satan. Whence comest thou? And uh, uh, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. Why does God raise the issue? Have you considered Job? Seemingly, uh, God is saying, uh, Satan, in spite of all of your efforts, uh, men do turn to me. Many men do serve me. Have you considered an outstanding example, Job? And uh, you have... Satan's representation of why Job served God. In verse 9, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job serve God for naught? Hast not thou made an hedge about him, and about all his house, and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. You notice uh, Satan is cynical about the sincerity of Job's worship. You know, Charles Simeon raises the question, Is earthly prosperity so generally the portion of the godly that hypocrites should be induced by the prospect of such prosperity to profess themselves the people of the Lord. Uh, for every one, says Simeon, that's led by a hope of honor or enrichment to embrace the religion of Christ, there are ten who are deterred from professing it by fear of injuring their respectability in the world or their interests economically, etc. Uh, but Satan says... Uh, he just serves you because you bless him. And Satan would then imply that's true of men in general. Uh, and uh, that's why men profess to be true followers of the Lord. You've built a hedge about him. And uh, you've not allowed me to test him, says Job. You can't really get any glory out of that, God. Uh, you're infatuated with the idea that a man loves you for your own sake but he never has and he never will. So Job is on trial now, not merely for himself, but the cause of true religion is represented in him and the cause of God on earth. And Satan makes the proposition, take what he has and he will curse thee. And God gives permission to Satan to test him. In verse 12, And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. We see this battle that's developing now over the soul of Job. Can Job withstand the shock of the test that he is to undergo? Remember, Job didn't know many of the truths that you and I know. He didn't have the scripture as you and I have it. 
Well, uh, we have a series of disasters that befall Job. The first series uh, is given in verses 13 to 22. There's the loss of his possessions. Uh, in verse 13, there was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their elder brother's house. And there came a messenger and said, uh, The oxen were plowing, and the asses feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them, and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped to tell thee. He loses his oxen and his ass and his servants to the Sabaeans. And then the second messenger arrives while the first one is yet speaking, to say that the sheep have been killed by lightning. Uh, in uh, verse 16, while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God has fallen from heaven, and hath burned up the sheep and the servants, and consumed them, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. And then there's a third messenger who says that the camels uh, and your servants that were watching them have been taken by the Chaldeans, and I only am left the loss of his prosperity, and then the loss of his posterity, his children. In verse 18, And while he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness, and smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men, and they are dead. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Uh, the loss of his posterity. What a tremendous uh, crisis has come into his life. How great an effect this is. And everything is so natural. The hand of God is concealed. Notice the greatness of Satan's power. Look at the instruments that he uses. The, uh, the wind, uh, the lightning, and uh, these hostile uh, Enemy people, how do you think you would have reacted if you had been Job and one messenger after another arise to tell you that all of your possessions are taken and then that your children, all in one time, what would you have done? Notice how Job reacts. Verse 20, Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and you expected to say cursed God, but it says, and worshiped. To me, that's one of the most profound verses in all of Scripture. Fell down upon the ground and worshipped and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be, not cursed be, blessed be the name of the Lord. Tremendous remarks, tremendous response. He immediately sees the hand of God in every event. The Lord gave. The Lord taketh away. There are no accidents in a world governed by God. In Matthew 10, uh, it says, that not a sparrow falls without your heavenly Father. It never occurred to him to curse the robbers or his guards. All those were secondary causes. And they disappear as he looks up to the great first cause and says, Blessed be God. He confesses God to be good and just, although he is harshly afflicted from God's hand. Many would have accused God of cruelty. 
You note the consideration that enabled Job to act in this fashion. How did he quiet his mind? What enabled him to respond like this? Notice what he said. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. I came into the world naked. I will return uh, naked. Now, he says, in effect, that what he had lost was not properly his, but God's. God gave it, and God saw fit to take it away. He took his own property. Uh, in responding this way, Job passed the first test. Verse 22, notice the evaluation. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. He passed the first test. He did not charge God foolishly. Notice, he did not worship God for the side effects of prosperity. And uh, notice also that if he had acted otherwise, he would have been charging God foolishly. Think of how often you and I have acted otherwise under far, far less calamity and pain. And we've charged God foolishly. Calvin says we complain uh, under any blow and we say, why has this happened? And uh, we pronounce this from a poisoned spirit as if we said the thing should have been otherwise. How did Job do that? W.H. Green says the bitterness of his loss is made the measure of the preciousness of the blessings God had given. The severity of his trial consists in parting with what God had bestowed. Every pang that now rends his heart is a fresh proof of how gracious God has been. In other words, God gave him these gifts that hurt so much when he took them away. Well... Think of how gracious God was to give such gifts to begin with and to let him have them all these years. The magnitude of the loss determines the value of the original gift. And this way of thinking enables him to act in this way. Now, we have a further discussion between God and Satan. In chapter 2 and verse 1, there's the repet uh, repetition of the presentation before God. And there was again a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said unto Satan, From whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. And still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. And notice here the confrontation of Satan with Job's steadfastness. And uh, God attributes to himself the effects God says he holds fast his integrity, though you moved me against him. And we might say, well, wait a minute, God. It was Satan who took these things. But since Satan could not have done it without God's permission, ultimately Job traced it back up to God, and God himself traces it back up to himself. 
everything must be traced back up to God. And uh, again, Satan expresses the conviction that Job is a hypocrite and that the test simply was not carried far enough. In verse 4, And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. Now that proverb, skin for skin, is obscure. No one knows what the meaning is. Apparently it's Job's skin that's involved. But the effect of what he's saying is we did not carry the test far enough. And God gives Satan permission to take all but Job's life, to touch Job's person. In verse 6, uh, in verse 5, Job, uh, Satan says, But put forth thine hand now, and touch his bone in his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. If uh, his life was taken, why then Job couldn't prove his mettle. Then we have the second series of disasters in Job's reaction. First, there's the loss of Job's health in uh, verse 7 of chapter 2. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. And he took him a potsherd to scrape himself withal, and he sat down among the ashes. Job loses his health. Uh, he is smitten with a terrible disease, boils and ulcers in time resulted in emaciation, fever, uh, sleeplessness. And he goes and he sits upon the ash heap. Apparently this was the city dump. Uh, he takes a piece of broken pottery and scratches himself with this. Uh, just a terrible thing. He not only loses his health, but he loses his help meets encouragement. In verse 9, Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die, or renounce God and die. Uh, this is awful. She tempts her husband to do exactly what Satan had predicted he would do. Why? Could she uh, really not stand uh, to see him in this misery? Probably that's it. Remember, she too had gone through the losses that he'd gone through, the loss of the children and uh, these other things. And and now uh, she feels God has done a cruel thing to a devoted servant of his, and she can't bear to have her husband continue to bless and adore the God who's torturing him to death. Um, she uh, sees her husband continue to trust God, and uh, this is just uh, almost too much for her, and but from the standpoint of the trial of Job, his closest companion, uh, his closest relationship is now broken. This could have been the most severe trial of all, almost. How does he react? In verse 10, But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speak. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil? Uh, Job rejects her advice firmly. 
You notice the comparison of her advice to that of a foolish woman. And we pick up here that he's saying, in effect, uh, you are not speaking like yourself. I wouldn't have expected this from you. You're speaking like one of the foolish women. Uh, she was a godly woman herself, and she was acting out of character here, as she's overwhelmed with this. And he makes an observation about the appropriateness of receiving evil. He had earlier said that it was right to give for God to give gifts and then to retrieve them. And now he says it's equally right for God to send good or evil. Shall we receive good at the hand of God and not receive evil? And the evil doesn't match the good. Uh, such positive faith is the touchstone that transmutes all to God, says Anderson in his commentary. For when the bad as well as the good is received at the hand of God, is coming from him, every experience of life becomes an occasion of blessing. But the cost is high to play the game this way. It's easier, says Anderson, to lower your view of God than to raise your faith to such a height. The evaluation of his reaction up to this point is given in the last part of verse 10. In all this did not Job sin with his lips. And again, we see that Satan's predictions did not come true. But remember, the test is just beginning. The battle is just entered. And uh, there's a long, hard fight ahead of Job. Now, when we try to wrap this up and make application to ourselves, we see, first of all, that this passage teaches us how we are to respond to our trials. Calvin says, the story which is here written shows us how we are in the hand of God and that it belongs to him to order our lives and to dispose of them according to his good pleasure and that our duty is to submit ourselves to him in all humbling and obedience. And even if it shall please him to raise his hand against us, though we may not perceive for what cause he does it, nevertheless, we should glorify him always, confessing that he is just and equitable, and that we should not murmur against him. And uh, we see what the word patience implies when James uh, singles out uh, Job as an example to us. He said, you've heard of the patience of Job. What is the patience of Job? Well, as Calvin says, it doesn't mean that we should have no sadness or be at all upset, in effect. But the virtue of patience is when we're able to restrain ourselves and so hold ourselves in bounds that we don't cease to glorify God in the midst of our afflictions, and that we fight against our unruly passions until we are able to conform to the good pleasure of God. He did not sin with his lips. He did not let his lips express some of the doubts that went through his heart. He rejected these as he fought them back and brought his feelings and attitude into conformity with the will of God. Now, the passage teaches us 
how we should respond unto our trials. A tremendous example. The Lord gave, the Lord took it away, take it away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Shall we receive good at the hands of the Lord and not evil? It also teaches us that we can respond this way. Here's a man who did it under far more severe circumstances and with far less resources than we have. We live on this side of Pentecost. We have the outpouring of the Spirit. We have the entire canon of Scripture. We've seen God's gift of His Son to die for our sins. Uh, we know why Christ came. We know what He did. Uh, we know that salvation is a gift uh, given to us through trust in Jesus Christ. And so uh, we know far more of the ways of God with men than Job did. We have far greater resources. Uh, we know a far greater demonstration that God is for us as demonstrated in the gift of His Son and as demonstrated to those of us who trust in Christ in the gift of salvation. Now, uh, it teaches us what we're to do and that by God's power through His Spirit we can respond in this way. It teaches us the awesome battle that's going on for the souls of men. Your soul, my soul, we have a terrible foe who has very powerful weapons and his goal is to cause you not to serve God, not to trust God, and not to believe that God loves you and, uh, and to turn you from him. It could well be that even at this moment, Satan is putting in a request before God uh, to test you as Job was tested. You remember Christ told Peter, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you that he might sift you like wheat, that he might prove that you're chaff and rather, wheat, rather than wheat, that you're a hypocrite. And uh, out of that request, you remember the uh, fall that Peter experienced as he denies the Lord. His faith didn't fail because the Lord prayed for him, and so he got back up and followed the Lord. But a tremendous trial came into his life as a result of Satan putting in a request. Satan wants to sift us. Satan delights in uh, locating the hypocrites. He offers himself, in a sense, to do this. Now, uh, it teaches us also of the one way of safety through faith in the Lamb of God, through trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior, as my sustainer, my sanctifier, my shepherd, daily trust, initial trust, an attitude of trust in Him and surrender to Him. Uh, there is the only place of safety. Not that we won't have trials, but the one who prayed for Peter that his faith fail not will be praying and interceding for us and carrying us through. The victory that overcometh the world is our faith. Have you ever trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you surrendered to him as your Lord? Are you trusting him daily, not becoming self-confident? Are you using the means, the armor of God that has been provided for us in this great war? If you have never personally trusted in Christ. That's the starting place. And if some tragedy has come into your life and uh, you have uh, been uh, murmuring and complaining and turning away from God because of it, 
turn back and respond now by his power as Job did and say, the Lord taketh, the Lord, the Lord gave, the Lord taketh away, blessed be, blessed be the name of the Lord. Let us pray. As our heads about, if you've never personally trusted in Jesus Christ, why not do that right now? Pray this prayer in your heart. If you're willing for him to be your master and you want to trust him as your savior, Lord Jesus, I do need a place of safety. I do know of that awful enemy of my soul and I know of my guilt. I thank you for dying for me. I surrender my will to you. I trust you to come into my life and to forgive me. Amen.